April 20th marks Behavioral Health Today's third anniversary. To celebrate our third year mark, we're releasing five shows this week, one episode each day. Two will be brand new shows, and three will be some of our favorites from the past year. We hope you enjoy all of them, both new and old, and we look forward to another year of bringing you trending and relevant content in behavioral and mental health. Welcome to Behavioral Health Today, a triad production. I'm your host, Dr. Graham Taylor. My guest today is Daryl Stickle. Daryl is one of the world's leading experts on trust. Daryl is an executive coach with over 20 years of experience focused on the construct of trust. As a founder of Trust Unlimited, Daryl teaches trust through masterclasses, small group learning, and one-on-one -on -one coaching. In June of 2022, Daryl published his book, Building Trust, Exceptional Leadership in an Uncertain World. Today, we're talking about building trust in his work as the founder of Trust Unlimited. Daryl, welcome to our show. Thanks for having me, Graham. It's such a pleasure to be here. It's really nice to have you. You know, Daryl, this, this construct of trust, trustworthiness, I don't believe there's a more important, more foundationally essential virtue or character trait for someone to possess or for us to have relationally with one another. Of all the areas that you could have focused on in your career, why trust? And how has trust been such a meaningful part of your life? Yeah, it's a great question, Graham. And partly the, the answer comes from some of the struggles that we're seeing in the world today. Mm -hmm. uh, we see, well, I call them big hairy problems, things like climate change, race relations. We're seeing a, an epidemic in mental health. We're seeing challenges around the pandemic. All of these things require collective collaborative action and trust levels are at the lowest we've ever seen. And I got started down this path. You know, I was born and raised in a small town in Northern British Columbia in Northern Canada, and it was pretty isolated. And, and so there was a sense of community that, that we had to pull together. And then, you know, I had a, a tumultuous childhood and early adulthood, lots of trauma and challenges, taught me a sense of empathy for others. And when I moved to Victoria to go to university, I'd find myself sitting on the bus and somebody would just sit down next to me and say, I, I'm really having a hard time. So for some reason, people opened up to me in a way that they didn't seem to with others. Mm. And part of me thought, you know, if this is going to keep happening to me, maybe I should get paid for this. And so <laughs> I started down a path towards clinical psychology. And so I was working with families in crisis and troubled teens and working on crisis lines and honing some of those skills. So I'd be the best possible candidate for a clinical psych program. Mm -hmm. But partway through, I just realized that a lot of the population I was working with were really just doing the best they could. And they, they couldn't get from A to B. And I thought this is going to drive me insane. And so I shifted into public administration and started working in native land claims. I was doing my master's degree in public admin. And as a research analyst, they would ask me these deep philosophical questions like, what is self-government? Or what will the problems look like 50 years after claims are settled? Hmm. And the last question they asked me was, how do we convince a group of people we've shafted for over 100 years they should trust us? Hmm. And I thought, well, that's a good question. And it got me thinking about long-term disputes and the challenges that we face. And, and so I went to Duke and wrote my doctoral thesis on building trust in hostile environments. And when I left Duke, I ended up working for a big management consulting firm. And they said, wow, you got really good client hands. Let's send you to the worst places possible. And so <laughs> I got a chance to apply the concepts that I'd been theorizing about. And then in 2001, I was involved in a 
car accident on my way to a client site. Cab I was in rear-ended another vehicle. I ended up with post-concussion syndrome. Mm -hmm. And so I ended up not being able to work 80 to 100 hours a week anymore. And so I, I started my own little company called Trust Unlimited. Mm -hmm. uh, and I've spent the last 20 years helping people understand what trust is, how it works, and how to mm -hmm. build it. Really good. Really good. So what trust is and how it works, set a kind of a foundational understanding of this, operationalize this for us. What are we talking about when we're referring to trust? So, so trust for me and for a number of folks is the willingness to make yourself vulnerable mm -hmm. when you can't completely predict how someone else is going to behave. Mm -hmm. And I know a lot of your listeners are, are therapists or folks yeah. who are involved with mental health in some way. This this is pertinent to them for a few reasons. You know, one is that the the research suggests that a huge portion of their effectiveness is actually determined by the nature of the relationship they built with their customers, with their clients. But also for their clients to be more successful in life. You know, we find that higher trust levels, being able to build trust leads to more effectiveness for leaders, for couples, for parents, for everyone. Mm -hmm. And it's in shorter supply now. And so, particularly when we're talking about the the epidemic of mental health, people are feeling overly vulnerable. And so, for me, trust is a combination of uncertainty and vulnerability. When we're deciding whether to trust somebody, we ask ourselves two fundamental questions. The first is, how likely am I to be harmed, which is perceived uncertainty. And the second is, if I'm harmed, how bad is it going to hurt, mm. which is perceived vulnerability. And those things multiply together. So it's uncertainty times vulnerability gives us a level of perceived risk. And we each have a threshold of risk that we're comfortable with. And so if we go beyond that threshold, we don't trust. If we're beneath it, then we do. And so building trust becomes an exercise in understanding where does uncertainty come from? How do I take steps to reduce it? Where do perceptions of vulnerability come from? And how do I help take steps to manage that for somebody else? And so for me, I think there are 10 levers that we can pull to build trust. If I could, if I could hold that just for a second, I would, I, yeah. I know, I know you've got a, a really solid approach to helping folks through what some of those are. And, 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 and I want to come to that if we can, I think got some top, yeah. you know, 10 options that build trust and, you know, some of the traits of trustworthiness. If you'd allow me just to kind of take what you're saying right here first, because I think it's really rich with some good information. Trust is, is risky. It involves uncertainty. It involves vulnerability. If we go back, it goes back to our, you know, when, when, when you're talking about trust, I think of Erickson's stage of psychosocial development and his right. application business and his generalization of life. And he's saying that to become fully functional, confident members of society, we, we must successfully complete each stage and resolve two conflicting states like trust versus mistrust or the second stage, you know, autonomy versus shame. And right. when, when we're successful in these developmental stages, we acquire these basic human virtues and a healthy you know, personality overall, and we become well-adjusted and better prepared for the challenges of life individually or in families or in business, like you're generalizing all of these to be based on trust. But failure, on the other hand, leads to this difficulty of navigating our future and it, it truly has a profound impact on our sense yeah. of self and impacts our relationships. So you're starting with the very first developmental milestone period that we're born into. We have we come into the world and having to build a basic trust versus mistrust as the right. cornerstone, the earliest developmental stage, 
that leads to ideally this virtue of hope and this sense that whatever crisis we meet, there's going to be someone around to provide some support or leadership, and and we can maybe do that ourselves. But trust is a cornerstone of everything. If it's if it's laid properly, everything lines up plumb. If it doesn't, things become uncertain, things become vulnerable, and trust yeah. becomes a genuine risk, doesn't it? It absolutely does. And that's a very good insight, Graham. It's it's so foundational to almost everything that goes everything. on for us. Yeah. And, you know, we've seen research that tells us that societies function better when trust levels are higher. There's there's higher economic growth. There's higher returns to shareholders. There's higher employee engagement, higher job satisfaction. I mean, there's, it's just the virtues are so profound it's slam, it's 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 so slam dunk i mean it's just so basic when you when you put it like that why would it not be something we can build good things on if yeah. i can trust that what i'm going to step onto or give my heart to or give my trust to or dedicate myself to isn't going to return some good have some good returns on the investment that i make given my trust yeah yeah what you're what you're indicating though is that again it's risky it's yeah. It's uncertain. It involves vulnerability. Put those two together, you can determine the risk level. What yeah. are some of the challenges that you're seeing that we face either today or why is there such a historic low in our trust yeah. levels? How come? Well, and and you're getting to the heart of what really troubles me is is that this stuff is so valuable and so mm. important. Mm. And I feel like I have a, an answer for how to help build it. Yeah, but I'm a voice crying out in the wilderness, right? And and so it's trying to get the signal through the noise. Why trust levels are so low right now is if we if we think about that formula, uncertainty times vulnerability equals risk. Well, our vulnerability hasn't really gone down, but our uncertainty is bouncing all over the place. Mm. And you know, if we think about early in relationships, uncertainty is high, which means we can only tolerate a small range of vulnerability. Mm-hmm. As that relationship gets deeper, the range of vulnerability we can tolerate starts to grow, to still fit beneath that threshold. Mm -hmm. And in deep relationships, we've got really compressed uncertainty, which means there's a huge range of vulnerability that we can tolerate and still trust that other person. Yeah. And if we think about what's been going on for the last decade, you know, there's there's massive mistrust in government, in public agencies, in media. It's because uncertainty has been so pronounced mm-hmm. and, you know, we're seeing this mental health epidemic right now because the rules have changed so quickly. What do you mean by the rules? Well, if we think about the pandemic, you know, we had different rules in different countries, right. different regions, different right. organizations, right. and the rules changed over time as we came to understand the the virus more fully and there were there was so much noise in the system. Yeah. People didn't know who to listen to or who to who to believe. And so that promotes a pretty profound spike in uncertainty. Yeah. At the same time, our social norms are evolving and changing probably faster than they ever have. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that that's either a positive or a negative. I'm just saying it promotes uncertainty for us. And so it makes it harder for us to really have a good sense of what the rules are. And when I think about being a parent, you know, I've, I've written about parenting, I've written about leadership, I've written about trust with the police, I, I worked with the Canadian military trying to help them build trust with the locals in Afghanistan. Mm. This model holds across all these different settings mm. because it gives us a framework to think about really good. where's the uncertainty coming from? Really good. Where's the vulnerability? And 
as I said, our vulnerability hasn't gone down. Maybe it's actually ticked up a notch and our uncertainty is bouncing all over the place. And so we need to be more thoughtful, more intentional about how we communicate. The things that made a great leader a decade ago are not the same that make a great leader today. Is that because of what you just referred to a moment ago about the rules? Yeah. What are the rules? And 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 when you refer to rules, what are you referring to and who sets these? So a lot of times it's the context. I, I talk about the context, which is something that most of the trust literature doesn't talk about. And so there's these informal and formal mechanisms of social control that constrain our behavior. A lot of times when I'm working with groups, I'll say to them, you know, if you could be anywhere doing anything with anyone right now, how many of you would be sitting here listening to me? Now, I stopped doing that, Graham, because it's not good for my self-esteem. <laughs> but I've been there. But yeah, but the question becomes like, why are you here then? Right? Yeah. Well, you're here because of the context. You're here because your boss told you you had to be, or there's a, a degree you're trying to complete, or you've got some other problem that's that's nudging at you that you want to solve. Mm. And, and so the context actually really determines our behavior in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a, a great deal of talk about the individual elements of trustworthiness, but if we're able to actually tell people how we're constrained, it starts to reduce their uncertainty about us starts to make it easier for them to predict how we're going to act and what good looks like for us. You know, I think about a doctor's office. You, you go into a doctor's office, they tell you to take off your clothes, and you do, right? Mm-hmm. I've tried that in other places, Graham. It doesn't work. It doesn't work real well. No. Not real well. I tell people I'm a doctor, you know? And, <laughs> and that's and, when your trust it, insurance company comes after you and says, hey. Stop that. <laughs> and, and if we actually just change the example from a doctor's office to a bathroom at a gas station, you could have the mm-hmm. same people in the same clothes with the same same conversation. Mm-hmm. And it would go from credible to creepy in a heartbeat. Mm-hmm. And so including the context allows us to understand why we trust some people without knowing them or distrust certain people without knowing them. So there are rules that govern our behavior. Right. And those rules seem to be a moving target now. So let me jump in on that piece. I, I, I love your mind and I love the way that you kind of go to the more nuanced pieces of this. So why is that so? How come? Well, because some of the rules that we had before weren't serving us or didn't serve us more broadly. Hmm. And we're starting to realize that some people who are very nostalgic about the way things used to be. Sure. But when we look back, a lot of times those those rules don't play well. There's technological change that's that's changing the way that we engage with the world. Mm-hmm. You know, we have conversations about community. And historically, community was was predetermined by geographic location. Mm-hmm. That's not the case anymore. Right. And so now our attention span is a mile wide and an inch deep. Yeah, and so those exactly. communities tend not to be as resilient as they used mm-hmm. to be. Mm-hmm. You don't get the benefit of the doubt the way that you may once have. You don't get the opportunity to fail and learn from that and evolve and grow in a way that you may have before. And so there's a number of forces pushing at these things, things that drove people to want to be leaders in the past have shifted and changed. Talk to people, you know, Graham, would you want to be president of the United States and watch your family get thrown under the bus the way that that seems to 
lead to or or put them at risk like some political leaders are. There's a lot of times the incentive structure seems to be aligned to promote people who are more self-involved into those roles. And the demands on leaders are, are growing at such a traumatic rate that it's almost an impossible task for someone who wants to have a balanced life, mm-hmm. who cares deeply about others. And so we're seeing the rules act as a disservice to us rather than a service. And we're trying to find a way to alter that as a society, but we don't have a collective conversation about what good looks like. We'll be right back after word from our sponsor. Nearly nine in 10 registered voters believe the nation faces a mental health crisis, according to a new USA Today Suffolk University poll. Americans are more concerned than ever about their mental health. Mental health first aid provides the resources and training to identify, understand, and respond to signs of mental health and substance use challenges. It provides the confidence and skills needed to offer life-saving assistance, and it provides peace of mind. Our experts provide mental health first aid training for adults, teens, caregivers, veterans, law enforcement, EMS, and school faculty. Mental health concerns are on the rise, but evidence-based training through mental health first aid can make a difference. Visit mentalhealthfirstaid.org to find a course near you, or email hello at mentalhealthfirstaid.org to schedule a training. Courses are available for individuals, groups, organizations, and companies of all sizes. Visit mentalhealthfirstaid.org and make a difference in your community. I like that piece right there. In the absence of what good looks like, I I think of family systems, you know. Yeah. We have systems wherever we go in our families, in our communities, you know, in our state, in our nation. Systems are systems, you know, and we need good leaders who are ideally, let's use a family as an example, the parents parent selflessly for the interests of the family, first and foremost. And they recognize the uncertainty, they recognize the vulnerability, and they take that into consideration. And they are selfless and servant leading their families in such a way that they build all of these healthy developmental milestones from trust that allows autonomy, that allows initiative, that allows industrious, you know, qualities in their kids and a solid identity. And they develop intimacy later on their lives. They become generative in the things that they do. And it just builds and builds and builds and builds upon one another. And the idea that if one system like this could do it in the in the context of a family, why couldn't we do this in a larger way? Yes, within the context of our nation, where we had the yeah. parents at the helm in a selfless role, where there's nothing that's about their gain, but the we all gain when we make things more certain. We embrace vulnerability and we build these very trustworthy relationships and these programs, whatever else is going to be. Yeah. And man, imagine how we could grow. If that could be in place, we 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 can though. This is the frustration for me: is that, is that building trust feel it. Yeah. is a skill that we can build, right? Yeah. And we can be better at this, but we need to be intentional. And a lot of times, it means we need to have a shared vocabulary. Mm-hmm. And and when I talk to parents, one of the levers I talk about is benevolence, having someone else's best interest at heart. Yes, very good. And you know, when I am standing in front of a group of parents, I'll say, "Who here has their kid's best interest at heart?" And all the hands go up. And when I flip that question, I say, how many of your kids would say that? It's Mm. about a third. And it's somewhat hesitant, right? And so if we're not making it land, 
in a place where it's supposed to be obvious, mm-hmm. then how do leaders do this? How do they promote this sense of benevolence? And partly it's because we're making assumptions about others. We interpret the world through stories. We're not sharing the narrative well. I have a fantastic relationship with my sons. They're 21 and 18. They mean more than me than anything. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I talk to parents about a command and control style versus a a relational style of Mm -hmm. parenting. And, you know, when my oldest was 12 years old, he looked at me one day and he said, Dad, I know you're all about what's best for me. Even if you're upset with me or annoyed or frustrated, I know it's about what's best for me. And that's what winning looks like. That must have been a nice moment. That was a fantastic moment. And it it means that my sons give me the benefit of the doubt. Yes. They interpret my actions in the most, yeah, most positive possible way. Yeah. Because they know that I I care about them and I actually communicate to them. You know, I include them in the conversation. Yeah. And a lot of times when we're trying to be benevolent in a parenting setting, you know, we're thinking about today, tomorrow, next week, next month, next year, but our kids are thinking about right now. Mm -hmm. And what we need to be able to do is, is come alongside them and help them be successful in the moment Mm -hmm. so that we earn the right to talk about success in the future. I love where you're leaning in that because I think trust is something that we, we have to earn and we need to be responsible for the earning of it. You're yeah. talking about concepts of you know promoting benevolence. You're talking about wanting to land this message of trust. Let's shift now back into what you introduced earlier in the show about how you build the kind of your formula for building trust, right. the process that you take folks through. Share that with yeah. us. So I have a very systematic, practical, applied approach to helping people understand what trust is and how it works. And so within uncertainty, I ask myself, where does uncertainty come from? If if part of the role for us to build trust is, is reducing uncertainty, where does it come from? And partly it comes from me as an individual, and partly it comes from the context that we're embedded in. And most of the literature, you know, 90, 95% of the literature focuses on those individual characteristics. Yeah. There was a, a great article written by a friend of mine in 1995 that talked about trustworthiness. His name's Roger Mayer, if folks want to look him up. Mm-hmm. And he he proposed three elements that drove perceptions of trustworthiness. And those were benevolence, integrity, and ability. And benevolence is that belief you've got my best interest at heart and that you'll act in my best interest. Integrity is, do I follow through on my commitments? And do my actions line up with the values that I express? And ability is, do I have the competence to do what I say I'm going to do? And then the context are the formal and informal mechanisms of social control that constrain our behavior. And so we can be active across all four of those levers because we all have the ability to build trust. Some are better than others, right? Those, Those who aren't very good have a lever that they pull. And usually it's the ability lever. I have this much experience, these kinds of credentials, this role within the organization. And so we pull that lever over and over again. Those who are better have multiple levers that they pull. Those who are really good have multiple levers and they know when to pull which one. Mm-hmm. So if I'm pulling the ability lever and you don't think I have your best interest in heart, there's a gap in benevolence. Yes. I miss. Right? And so it's all about trying to improve people's batting average. Great. And so what I do is I systematically walk through and show people the levers 
and talk them through how to pull each lever. And that's what I've done, you know, in the book that I wrote and in the courses that I do, I get people to practice these things because so often the training that we do is fire and forget. We show people concepts and then just hope that they figure it out. Mm-hmm. But but the approach that I take is, is here's the lever, here's how it works, now here's how to pull it. And so, you know, one story that I like to tell is about my youngest son, Alexander. And... You know, I was I was in a parenting course. I was I was helping to co-lead the parenting course, and and Dr. Allison Reese was was leading it. And she was talking about traits and the fact that often they're not intentional, they're not, you know, within our control. They're part of who we are. And there's positive and negative attributes associated with these traits. And my youngest was highly distractible. And the positive elements of that trait are that he's, you know, funny, he's engaged, he cares about people, he notices things, he's curious about the world. The negative element was that he's late. He misses things, he gets distracted. And so he was young, you know, he was probably 11, 12 years old. And I'm waiting for him to come out after school. And he's later than normal, right? Like all the other kids have come out, the teachers have come out, the janitor's trying to lock up and he he's dragging his feet and we we get a limited amount of time together, right? Because right. my ex-wife and I had split up and, I, and, I, and so there's some anxiety for me. And as he's approaching, I'm thinking about this fact that this is not his intent, mm-hmm. right? This is just part of who he is. Mm-hmm. And I have the choice in this moment to either be angry and frustrated and give him crap for being late, which is what everyone has been doing. And it's not changing sure. the behavior. Sure. Or I can love and accept him for who he is, all that he is. And so he approaches me and he says, his head's down, he's dragging his feet. He says, I'm really sorry, I'm late. And I looked at him and I said, buddy, you're worth the wait. Mm-hmm. That's lovely. And I, yeah. And I said, whoever comes next can wait. Nothing's more <laughs> important than you. And it was such a relief for him. What'd you see on his face? Just such a, a, a feeling of gratitude and acceptance yeah. that, that he was experiencing. Yeah. It was a change moment for our relationship. It was a transitional moment for our relationship. Yeah. Because everyone had been yelling at him about this. Yeah. And I knew that if he had control over it, he would have exerted that. And this was something he was learning to cope with. And we had another conversation because my sons are different. You know, they're three years apart. My older son was really engaged in sports, and it's something that I enjoyed as well. And and my younger son said to me, Dad, I'm sorry I'm not more like Thomas. Mm. Because it's so easy for you guys to have conversations about some of the things you have shared interests in. And I said, buddy, I spend zero time wishing you were someone else. Mm. I wouldn't change you. I love you for who you are and all that you are. Mm. And so... That's what benevolence starts to look like. Right. And, you know, for for some of my students, they'll, they'll ask the question, you know, how do I even start? Well, I give people a template. You know, I, I give them a template for a conversation because these are often muscles that they haven't exercised before. Right. And so when it comes to the benevolence conversation, I'll say, you know, you're going to have a conversation with someone. You're going to say, I heard this guy, Daryl, he was talking about trust. 
He said, benevolence is really important. And that's having someone's best interest at heart. And I, I think I do that, but it doesn't always land that way. Mm. You ever experienced that? And everyone's experienced that, you know, for the most part. And, and so they'll say, yeah, you know, I, I did this or I did this other thing. I had best intentions. And then you start to narrow the funnel a bit. And you say, have you ever had someone really have your back? What did they do? What did it look like? How did it feel? And now you're priming them and you're getting hints about what benevolence mm. looks like for them. Mm. And then you narrow the funnel further and you go, what would it look like if I was benevolent to you? Mm. What does success look like for you? How do I help you get there? What matters most to you? And now we've created this moment where we can be transparent. Man, and, that's really that's really good. Continue. And and now later on in conversations, we can say, remember when you told me this is what mattered to you? Mm -hmm. This is me trying to do that. And so we take some of the noise out of the system. We create the opportunity to have a shared narrative about why I'm doing some of the things I'm doing. You know, my oldest wanted to get a baseball scholarship. And he said, this is my dream. And I said, okay, so that means that you need to eat well, you need to exercise, you need to work on your skills and practice hard, you need to be a good teammate, you need to do well in school. You know, if that's your goal, then these are the things that you need to do to get there. Mm -hmm. And now all of a sudden I'm coming alongside him and he feels like it's benevolence rather than nagging. That's right. When I'm asking him questions about those things, his story, his interpretation is different. I love that theme of coming alongside as a leader. And it's, you know, sometimes we nudge and sometimes we direct and lead, but once things get set up, coming alongside becomes such a nice relationship. And in both of those stories, you're pulling some really nice lovers, yeah. you know, with your youngest son around that of, you know, just giving him some grace about being late and letting him know that his self-worth is not based on his timeliness to you. In fact, everybody else is probably giving him some heat around that. In that moment, you give him really kind of what's referred to at times as a corrective emotional experience that yeah. I love just for who I am, even if I can't, you know, check all the boxes or do all the things right to keep people happy around me. My dad loves me nonetheless, and he wouldn't rather be with anybody else but with me in this moment, regardless of my yeah. timeliness. And, and, and I love that. You know, you're talking about these traits, Daryl, around trustworthiness and and these 10 options to building trust. Can you go a little bit more just into that? we got a, we got a handful of minutes left, but just go sure. just a little bit more into these options and the traits of trustworthiness for us, if you would. So the four levers are, you know, within uncertainty. There's two levers within vulnerability, right? So understanding what the other person thinks is at stake and how they value it. Mm -hmm. And then also understanding their context. So you understanding my context reduces your uncertainty about me. Me understanding your context informs me about how you're vulnerable, what your options are, what your choices are. Got it. After we've made the trust decision, there's a perceived outcome. And we can have the same experience and dramatically different perceptions. Mm -hmm. And so within the perceived outcome, there's two levers. And one of those is, you know, do we create a shared narrative about what happened? And even better, do we create a shared understanding of what good looks like, a good outcome looks like mm -hmm. before we start? Very good. So that there isn't the risk of us having different perceptions of what a good outcome looked like. That's really a cornerstone in itself, isn't it? It's like where where are we going? What's it going to look like? How are we going to know? And what right. are some of the mile? What maybe what are some of the milestones along the way that we could say, yeah. hey, this, is, this is lining up correctly. I like that. So that we're all putting our energy in the same direction, mm -hmm. right? I mean, how often has someone right. said, "Well, wow, if I knew that that's what <laughs> the rules were, I would have acted differently." <laughs> yeah. And then in the middle of all this is our emotional states whether we like or dislike someone else. 
So 99.9% of the trust research treats people like they're rational actors. And I don't know if you've met people before, but we're not always rational, right? No way. And, and so and this was at the heart of these sort of long-term disputes is we're taking cognitive rational approaches to profoundly emotional problems. Mm-hmm. And so if we like people, we tend to have a positive perception of them. We look for reasons to trust them. We're more likely to trust them. We're more likely to see the outcome as positive. It creates this virtuous cycle. If we don't like people, we look for reasons not to trust them. We've got this negative story about them. To sure. search for reasons, we, we're more likely to see the outcome as negative, to blame mm-hmm. it on them. Mm-hmm. And then it creates this vicious cycle. Yeah. And the more extreme those emotional states become, the less rational we are. Very good. And so that needs to be the place where we intervene first to try to reset those emotional states before we start pulling these cognitive rational levers. So there's four levers in uncertainty, two in vulnerability, two in perceived outcomes, and two in the emotional states. Got it. You know, so much of that is is outside of what the original trust literature talked about. No one talks about emotions and relationships yeah. and the impact it has. There's not a lot of talk about context. There's not. There's very little talk about vulnerability, which means we can't talk about depth of relationship. And there's not a lot of talk about perceived outcomes. When I hear that vulnerability piece, and 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 you're talking about the emotional states being so involved in the trust building, you know, if you and I are coming together, you've got your story that predates me. I've yeah. got my story that predates, you know, you. But if we're going to work together, we almost have to transcendently move out of your story, my story. And you're giving people yeah. a really nice kind of GPS path, you know, pathway of how to transcend and almost create a third way of being together. Not your story solely, not mine, but one that we begin to share This third way of being that allows vulnerability through agreements, through empathy, through, you know, the vulnerability, through clarifying uncertainty, where are we going to be going? That allows that trust to happen. And I think in that moment too, I think that can be corrective for those that have had really difficult times with trust being, you know, betrayed or, or not to something that they can really feel safe in. Yeah. Yeah. It's clear that, that you're uh, skilled at this, Graham, because that's exactly what I do. When you when you write a PhD about building trust in hostile environments, people call you when things are hostile. <laughs> and so what I've done in the past with folks who are in dispute is I've sat down with the first party and said, what's your story? Mm. How'd we get here? What's happened? Nice. And then I separately sit down with the second party and say, what's your story? What's happened? How'd we get here? And then I bring them together and I say, okay, person one, tell me person two's story. Mm. So it provokes that empathy. Nice. And it gives the other person a chance to correct misperceptions. Mm-hmm. And they start creating a, a, it's part of the exercise of creating a shared narrative of what's going on, what happened. Yeah. How did that impact you? And, and then I get the second person to tell me the first person's story. And all of a sudden we're starting to create this shared narrative. That's right. And that's where empathy comes from. You talked about earlier. It's my understanding you. Yeah. And as I begin to develop this empathy, I begin to soften. And that softening allows maybe kind of some of the ingredients for this new trust you're trying to build to develop. So yeah, I, I just I just really appreciate this. This is such a such a great topic, Daryl. And you're so clear and methodical. I, I love the idea that there's there's this formulaic way of measuring these things, of of deciding are you pulling the right levers at the right time? 
I like the yeah. idea that you can see, you know, how you can encourage someone to be effective in each of these stages. I know we're kind of winding down today. I want to ask a question just in a moment, but anything you want to kind of capstone around this approach that you have before we move on a little bit? Trust is a skill we can all build. And one of the challenges I face is that 95% of people believe they're more trustworthy than average. Yeah, right. And aside from being statistically impossible, it means that when we actually do recognize a trust problem, we think it's someone else's fault. Yeah. And so yeah. the objective is no less than making the world's better place. And what I would love is if people, you know, you can go to my website and, and look at, in the blog section at the articles, you can buy the book, but apply the concepts. Mm -hmm. Let's start getting along better. Mm -hmm. And that that's, it's something we can be intentional about. Yeah, I really like that. In fact, I was just going to ask you before we close, what is the one thing you'd want our listeners to walk away with from today's show, but you just kind of knocked it out of the park with what you just said right there. So I'm going to stick with that as a kind of a nice way to bring this kind of to a close. I want to ask you one other question just before yeah. we go, who, who's made the biggest impact in your life personally and professionally with regard to trust? <laughs> so there's been so many different players that have, that have played a role, both positive uh -huh. and negative, but I got to say my, my biggest assistant right now is my guide dog, Drake. Oh, I got, got to talk about Drake here, Daryl. The the director of goodness, the DOG <laughs> for my company. The DOG. Um, Drake helps me navigate the world, and I'm legally blind. And there was a real stretch where I didn't have Drake or, or a guide dog, mm -hmm. and I could feel alone in a crowd mm -hmm. because I couldn't see body language. I didn't know who to approach or how to approach them, You know, who was open, who wasn't. Drake changes all of that. Oh, he that. brings people to us and he's got such a positive story about everyone. <laughs> you know, he's, he's so happy to see everyone. He's, he's got a positive narrative about the exchange he's about to have with everyone. If we had his brain chemistry, the world would be a much better place. Wouldn't that, isn't that true? Mm -hmm. That's yeah. awesome. For those listening, you can see Drake on the website just, and there's a really nice write up around him as well. And what a lovely companion. And I can truly appreciate the benefit of that trusting relationship. He looks like a, just a love. And I love the DOG, director of goodness, the dog on, on hand, and what a wonderful yeah. pal. Hey, as we wind down today, Daryl, would you give us some resources and ways that we can learn more about you, your company, Trust Unlimited, and your new book? Yeah. So people can go to the website, trustunlimited.com. They can email me, Daryl, at trustunlimited.com if they, if they want to reach out and have a conversation. I wrote the book because I was having profound impact, but I felt like I was dropping grains of sand in the ocean mm -hmm. and the book is an intent to scale. And so I've, I've put everything there, right? The, the whole models there talk about how to pull the levers. You know, I tried to make it as, as transparent and easy to read as possible. It's called building trust, exceptional leadership in an uncertain world. You can get it on Amazon or, or anywhere you buy books online or on audible, and they can reach out to me on LinkedIn as well. And I'm really hoping people come alongside and help me pick up great big rocks that we can throw in the water and make a huge splash. Yeah. Stephen Covey does that experiment where you take the big rocks, you know, the pebbles and the sand and you get, put them all in a vase. And if you don't put them in the right order, they won't fit. But if you put right. the big rocks first and the pebbles and the sand, everything, everything fits. But if you put them in the wrong order, your, your big rocks here are truly those developmental milestones that we've got to hit for anything yeah. to be possible. Autonomy, 
and being industrious, being generative, developing intimacy, all of these things are, are, are predicated upon that big rock of trust, that cornerstone being put into place first. And I, I can't think of a more healing message for our nation today, our families, yeah. communities, our nation. And the thing that's absent right now that is most felt that is, I believe, causing the majority of the issues going on is the absence of trust and the uncertainty yeah. that we live in and the vulnerability that we are unwilling to demonstrate and to bring into relationships. So your message, Daryl, is an awesome one. And I so appreciate having you on the show today. It's been a pleasure being here. Been a lot of fun. A lot of fun. Yeah. Well, thank you for being here. And I also want to thank you, our listeners, for dropping by and joining Daryl and me today. It's always great to have you with us as well. I want to remind you that today's episode with Daryl and its resources and all of our other episodes can be found on our webpage at triadhq.com slash bht. So check out our webpage, triadhq.com slash bht and explore our archive of podcasts and other resource materials. Thanks again for being with us on the show. And we'll look forward to having you back with us next time on Behavior Health Today. We appreciate all the support from our community. And if you like our show, one of the best ways you can support it is by giving us a five-star rating and leaving a review. Behavioral Health Today is a podcast part of the Tribe Network, all rights reserved.